Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. We are back with another story from Scotland. And while last time we headed to the Scottish capital on the East Coast, it's now time to head to my hometown and the largest city in Scotland. I'm talking, of course, about Glasgow. This season is all about the people of Scotland, their stories and the ways in which they make every trip to Scotland so special. Now, a podcast about Scotland's people would be incomplete without a story from Glasgow. The city's motto is, after all, people make Glasgow. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that anyone who has ever been to Glasgow can agree with that slogan. We are heading to an iconic location in the city. Two, actually. We'll dive into the history of Glasgow, the good, the bad and the ugly. We'll hear about some of its most outstanding citizens and learn how to look at history from a slightly different perspective. Without further ado, this is Flourish. I'm standing in a gloomy room with low ceilings. Whenever I take a step on the cold stone tiles, I can hear the echo travelling through the large room. But there are stone columns and arches all around me, obstructing my view. On the far edges of the room, there are tall, thin windows, but even though light is pouring in, it's fairly dark where I'm standing. 
In the center of the room, there is an altar, covered in a colorful cloth, and a cross resting on top. Only that it isn't an altar. It's the tomb of St. Mungo, the patron saint of Glasgow and founder of the city. I'm at the crypt of Glasgow Cathedral, a big medieval church in the heart of the city and the oldest building in Glasgow. It has three parts, a large open nave with tall stone arches and colourful stained glass windows. Look up and you'll find that the ceiling looks like an upside down boat. The choir at the front of the church is separated from the nave by a stone-carved pulpitum. It's filled with wooden benches, and the ceiling carries the colourful crests of Glaswegian nobility. Below lies the crypt, and the tomb of St Mungo. A long time ago, in the 6th century, Mungo, who is also known as Kentigern, built a church here on the River Clyde, in exactly the same spot where Glasgow Cathedral stands today. As his community grew, so did the village around. When he died, Mungo was buried at this church, and it is believed that his remains still rest here today. Here is the bird that never flew. Here is the tree that never grew. Here is the bell that never rang. Here is the fish that never swam. This verse tells of the four religious miracles St Mungo performed, but it also represents the city's coat of arms. His is a story that is inextricably connected to the story of Glasgow. You almost can't tell one without the other. He even coined the city's slogan, Let Glasgow Flourish. But of course, there are many more stories hidden beneath the surface and between the cracks of stones and buildings. Let's listen to some of them. I leave the crypt, climb the stairs back into the nave of the church and exit through the tall doors at the back. There, I join a group gathering outside and our journey begins. I'm on a woman's heritage walk of the Glasgow necropolis, the city of the dead. I hear stories of notorious women and forgotten heroines who have been buried here during the 19th and 20th century. We'll hear about witches and gypsies, women who've dedicated their lives to the service of others, and women who left fortunes to let Glasgow flourish. Our tour guides are volunteers of the Glasgow Women's Library. They are the history detectives who have gleaned information and stories to build tours around the city that share these often forgotten or untold tales. Today, there are six women's heritage trails through different parts of Glasgow, two routes to explore the history of the city's suffragettes and one LGBTQ heritage trail through the city centre. On these tours, the guides share insights into the lives of Glasgow's women and their role in society. They tell us about outstanding women who call the city their home. And most importantly, they tell gripping stories to bring these histories to life and give them relevance, no matter how much time has passed. After all, women have always made up 50% of the population, 
So why are they so blatantly absent from recorded history? Our walk on the necropolis begins just outside the cathedral. We make our way to a tall stone plinth that is decorated with carvings of thistles and flowers. But as beautiful as it may look, it's shrouded in a dark story. Reformation times, this is where women accused of witchcraft were imprisoned and often put to death. So a particularly vicious time for this was during the reign of James VI, which was 1566 to 1625, and he had a real hate campaign against women alleged to be witches. And here's a story about one of them. So Margaret Aitken was known as the Great Witch of Balweary, and she claimed that she could identify witches by a mark in their eye. And so the church authorities loved this, and they took her round from town to town, and she'd be branding women as witches, and of course that condemned them to death, basically. Then back in Glasgow, somebody had a bright idea, and they decided to test Margaret. So what they did was they took around some of the women that she'd already identified as witches and this time she said some of them weren't witches. So there was an outcry and an inquiry into how reliable these methods of identifying witches actually were and for a time the persecutions subsided and thanks to a very brave Glasgow woman called Marion Walker she obtained and leaked documents about the case and those ministers and magistrates who'd wrongly condemned women to death were named and shamed. And what about uh, Margaret Aitken, the witch of Balweary, I hear you ask? She was tried, confessed and put to death. So there's a campaign to get a formal pardon to all those who were wrongly accused of witchcraft. So far, the First Minister has already given an apology and another strand of the campaign... The campaign our guide Annabelle is talking about calls for justice for the 4,000 people who were accused of witchcraft in Scotland, tortured and executed at a rate nearly five times as high as the European average. The vast majority of them were women. This year, the Scottish First Minister has issued an official apology to the people who were persecuted as witches, and hopefully a pardon and a national monument will follow soon. So now we are going to go through the gates of the necropolis and we're going to stop a little way down on the left for Mary to tell you something about another monument. We're now walking down the cobbled road that leads to the necropolis and across a bridge. In Venice, the Bridge of Sighs connects the prison with the Doge's palace and the view from there was the last view people would see before they were imprisoned. In Glasgow... The Bridge of Sighs connects the world of the living and the dead. At the far end, there is a large stone arch with five orange gates. The necropolis, our guides tell us, was initially supposed to be a system of tunnels and catacombs dug into the hill behind the cathedral. Back in those days, cemeteries weren't always the peaceful resting place people wanted for their loved ones. Grave robbing was a common practice and anatomy schools paid a good price for newly deceased bodies. The gated catacombs were supposed to hold off these body snatchers and ensure the bodies of loved ones would be safe. 
Shortly before the necropolis opened, though, a new law was passed that permitted physicians and surgeons to obtain corpses that were unclaimed after death, and it allowed individuals to donate their bodies to this kind of research. The age of the body snatchers had passed, and the necropolis became the garden cemetery it is today. We follow the paved paths leading up and down the terraced hill. To the left, impossible to miss, stands the tall cathedral. From this angle, it looks even bigger than it does on the inside. To my right, I can see the headstones coated in colourful patches of moss. There are walls covered in dark green ivy growing out of control. At the top of the hill, the tall statue of John Knox looks down on us. He led the Scottish Reformation in the 16th century, and even though he wasn't buried anywhere near the necropolis, the city decided there should be a monument to him here on this hill. There are 3,500 visible graves here at the necropolis. Many are marked by elaborate headstones, bearing all sorts of symbols. Doorways represent the passing through to the other side. Cherubs indicate the Day of Judgment. A snake catching its own tail stands for immortality. Celtic crosses represent the unity of heaven and earth, and draped or undraped urns reveal whether the person who was buried here died young or old. Statues tower above the graves of the city's most formidable citizens. Mausoleums, many of which have been restored by the friends of the Glasgow necropolis, pay tribute to its leading families, few of them. Are women. But overall, these monuments barely scratch the surface, as well over 50,000 people are actually buried on these slopes, many of whom rest in unmarked graves. The grave of Colinda Lee is an exception. Colinda was a traveller, and famously the daughter of a leading gypsy family from Norfolk. Together with her husband George and their eight children, she toured all over Great Britain to wow the Victorian society with their unique way of life. Like a travelling circus, they showcased their colourful dresses, their quirky caravans and their magical skills. Ladies could have their fortunes read, and the Lees could make a living. Wherever they went, people were excited to attend these gypsy balls, and soon Corlinda and George were known as the King and Queen of the Gypsies. In Scotland, Corlinda even met another queen. Well, actually, the queen. Queen Victoria. And legend has it that she read her palm on the coast near Dunbar. And what was good enough for the queen was good enough for well-off ladies all over the land. Queen Victoria, queen Victoria was there. And she um, went into the Royal Epping Forest Gypsy Ball. I, I don't know if she paid her entrance fee or not. But um, I'm presuming she crossed Corlinda's hand with silver because that is the tradition after all, and Carlinda read her palm. And of course they used that as good publicity, and so the other, it was, became fashionable for other um, middle-class Victorian families to go in and see the ball and have their hands, uh, their palm read by Carlinda. Now, the balls were obviously a means of survival, calling themselves kings and queens. It was an attempt to gain kudos, because obviously that was an attempt. In Glasgow, Corlinda and George set up shop in a market area near today's Barris, which is to this day a place for all things quirky 
an alternative. She died in 1900 and was buried right here at the necropolis. The inscription on her gravestone reads that she was charitable to the poor, loved and respected by all. Today, it is a common practice to leave a coin at her grave and wish for good fortune. I see hundreds of them in the cracks between plinth and headstone. Others are coated in deep orange rust. I take out a coin and find a free slot. Who knows what it's good for? One for good luck. We continue our walk to the top of the hill. Up here, you can see the most magnificent tombs, rivaled only by the views of the city. You may find that a cemetery is a weird place to visit, but once you're up here, you'll see why it's one of my favourite viewpoints of Glasgow. We stop by a wall and look out onto the sprawling city. Glasgow lies in a valley of the River Clyde. You can easily see the city limits to the north and south, framed by hills and mountains. In the north, you can see the round backs of the Campsies, the peak of Dumgoyne, and on a clear day, if you're lucky, the top of Ben Lomond. To the south are the Brees, Kafkin and Glenifer, and at their tops you can see the first windmills rise into the sky. East to west is another story, though, as the city reaches along the valley, engulfing one suburb after the next, closing the gaps between them. Leslie, another one of our guides, points out some landmarks we can see from here. There are the tall trees over a Glasgow green, Glasgow's first public park. Not far from there is where the first public wash houses were built in 1876. In Scotland, they're known as the Steamies. They formed an integral part of women's lives. Not only did they come here to bathe and wash clothes, the Steamies were also an important place for socialising, catching up with friends for women and their children alike. Some even had nurseries. Long before washing machines were available, women would queue for hours to get a spot at the Steamies, and to tell the story of Glasgow without mentioning the wash houses would be an incomplete history. Another building that stands out in the landscape is the Templeton Carpet Factory, or rather, the building that used to house the factory. Its distinctive facade was modelled after Venetian palazzos and decorated in a colourful mosaic. Today, it is home to numerous businesses, including a brewery. But back in those days, the people who worked here produced carpets that went to grand houses around the world. Even the Titanic had a carpet made at Templeton. But working there wasn't easy. Carpet making is a dusty business, and many women and men who worked here faced problems with their lungs in later life. And there is another sad story to tell about the factory. On the 1st of November, 1889, while the factory was still under construction, a wall collapsed and killed 29 women and girls who were trapped inside. In 2005, a memorial was created for them beneath the base of Templeton Gate. But not all of the stories told here at the necropolis today have such a tragic fate. Annabel leads us now between a row of towering headstones 
until we reach a large tomb. Three steps lead up to a gabled stone sarcophagus with carved decorations. This is the family tomb of John Elder, his wife Isabella, and her brother, John Francis Ewer. John Elder was a successful shipbuilder and ran a shipyard in Govan, a district on the south side of Glasgow. It was regarded as one of the world's leading shipyards, and when he died in 1869, Isabella took over the business, first on her own and then with her brother. Isabella was a wealthy woman, and she used her fortune to improve the lives of the people of Govan, the workers from the shipyard and their families, and everyone else who lived here. She built a park across the road from the shipyard and dedicated it to her late husband. Next came a library and a hospital, a school for domestic economy and a nurse's training home. She donated money to the University of Glasgow to support the Chair of Civil Engineering and the Chair of Naval Architecture. But it was the education of women that was particularly close to her heart. She gifted a building in Glasgow's leafy West End to Queen Margaret College, which offered higher education to women who were restricted from attending the university. Isabella's donation funded medicine courses for women, with the stipulation that they were to get the same level of education as their male colleagues. Later, the college was integrated into the university, and Dr Marion Gilchrist became the first woman to graduate with a degree in medicine. It is a sign of fate that she would also be the doctor to sign Isabella Elder's death certificate. A year later, a statue was erected in Isabella's memory, becoming only one of four statues of women in the entire city of Glasgow. The others are of Queen Victoria, Spanish Civil War heroine Dolores Ibaruri, and Mary Barber, a workers' rights activist who led the Glasgow rent strikes in 1915. Without these and other women, the history of Glasgow would read like a book with half the pages missing. Flourished, the city would have not. The Glasgow necropolis is full of their stories, some tragic and sad, others uplifting, inspiring or even entertaining. So come, if you dare, and follow my footsteps on a tour of the city of the dead. enjoyed this story about the Glasgow Necropolis and some of the women whose stories are told on a Women's Heritage Walk by Glasgow Women's Library. There are obviously a lot more stories included on this tour and in this week's newsletter I'm sharing some resources where you can dive deeper and find out more. You can sign up via the link in the show notes. Now it's time to take a wee break and hear a story about our sponsors. And we're back. Now it's time for the practical part of the show. Here are five travel tips for a city trip to Glasgow. Tip number one, visit the Glasgow Women's Library. The Glasgow Women's Library 
is a place for everyone who would like to learn more about women's history and literature. It's not only a library, but also an accredited museum with exhibitions and a busy schedule of special events. Anyone is welcome, and if you're looking to experience Glasgow beyond the tourist attractions, there really is no better place. Tip number two. Do a women's heritage walk. The history detectives at Glasgow Women's Library have developed several walks that tell the stories of Glasgow's women. The guided walks happen only a handful of times throughout the year, but you can download the leaflets for all the routes and explore at your own pace. The West End and East End tours are even available as free audio guides. You can find all these downloads on the Women's Library website, and you'll find a link to that in the show notes. Tip number three, visit the People's Palace at Glasgow Green. The People's Palace is one of my favourite museums in Glasgow because it tells the social and cultural history of its people. You'll find exhibitions about the steamies I mentioned in today's stories, but also about living conditions in Glasgow, times of prohibition, where Glaswegians went on holiday back in the days, and where many of them fell in love. The museum is free to visit, and there's also a lovely greenhouse filled with tropical plants attached to it. Tip number four, check out the beer garden at West Brewery. Remember the Templeton building at Glasgow Green? Well, one of the businesses located there today is West Brewery, a beer company founded by a German woman who fell in love with Glasgow, but missed the kind of beer she'd drink back home in Germany. They brew beer on site and have a great restaurant with lots of German classics on the menu. But my favourite thing about West is their beer garden. It faces West and is just the most perfect spot for a sunny summer evening. Tip number five, go bargain hunting at the Barras. The Barras is an iconic market in the east end of Glasgow. It was opened in the 1920s and has since been the place to go for literally anything you need, from board games to garden hoses. There are several market halls with stands, yards with shops and an outdoor market area. It's quieter now than it was in its heyday, but it's still a great place to mingle with locals and get a taste of Glaswegian flair. At the heart of the Barras, you can find the famous Barrowland Ballroom, one of the city's best music venues. You might even be able to catch a show here. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own trip to Glasgow. You probably know that I live here, so I may be a bit biased, but the city has an absolutely fascinating history and so many influential Scots have lived here. Sometimes you just need to dig a little deeper to find out about those stories. Oh, and in case you speak German, I actually just published a book about hidden gems in Glasgow for a German publishing house. I'll put the link to the book in the show notes. Next week, we're staying on the topic of women's history. My guest is Adele Patrick, co-founder of the Glasgow Women's Library, which you heard a little bit about in today's story. She's an absolute powerhouse, and I'm so excited to share our conversation with you soon. We'll chat about the time she moved to Glasgow, what it was like to win the Scotswoman of the Year Award, and her personal happy places in the city. I hope you'll tune in again. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. Before I let you go, let me tell you about my Patreon. You can support the show in many ways, but if financial giving is in the cards for you, why not join our Patreon from £3 per month? 
you'll get access to bonus materials and some behind-the-scenes glimpses. You'll find the link in the show notes. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Tarowskis, who is the co-producer and editor, and does the sound design, and to Michelle Payne, who helps with transcripts and social media. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmecee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.